We began our Lent journey last week with water, as we started with Jesus' baptism. And that was an important starting point for our Lenten journey, as that is a powerful expression of our covenant, our identity, our, the, our life as defined by God. Jesus, as the Son of Man last week, reflected our true identity, not as strangers, not as with strangers with something to earn or prove, but as beloved sons and daughters in whom our Father is well pleased. As the Son of God, Jesus pioneered this incredible responsibility for which we were born and to which we have been called, representatives of the kingdom of God. It's more than just water that Jesus submerged into in the Jordan River. He was baptized into our brokenness, the sin that plagues us, and the consequence of death, the inevitable destination to which all of our sin leads. And yet, as we learned last week, at the same time, as the Holy Spirit descended upon Christ, Matthew tells us it remained upon him, and therefore a conduit, if you will, between the things of heaven and earth was built, and the authority and power of the kingdom was unleashed through Jesus Christ. In that moment, he who was without sin began the journey of becoming sin, as Paul tells us, in order to clear the way so that we might become the righteousness of God, faithful stewards of our Father's reign. It is by grace that humanity was created. It is through grace that humanity has been redeemed, and it's living out of such grace that we can joyfully flourish. That's the, the desire the Father has for us, as we talked about it last week, to joyfully flourish in our relationship to Him and with each other. Now, with our true covenant identity having been declared and being filled with the authority and power of the kingdom, we would think, if we hadn't read this, the, the, the Scriptures before, that following Jesus to where He next leads us would be something far more exciting, far more, uh, shall we say, positive. And yet, it's much to our surprise, if we read this for the first time, that the Holy Spirit, not, not circumstance, the Holy Spirit purposefully leads Jesus into the wilderness. Into the wilderness. Confidence, it would seem, leads to challenge. Empowerment results in being tested. You know, last week, uh, we talked about, again, those covenant and kingdom triangles, and it's this idea of, again, of, of knowing who we are, our identity, informs our authority and our power. And I, I mentioned a principle at work, a simple equation, really, that the power of God flows through the vessel with the least resistance. As the resistance goes down, the power goes up. And one of the things that I pointed out to you to, to notice the next time you read the Gospels in full is that Jesus was a vessel with no resistance and therefore no resistance to his Father, no resistance to the kingdom, and therefore we witness the authority and power of the kingdom flowing freely and unhindered through him. And that's the desire that God has for us, that the power and authority of the kingdom that he in intends for us to experience would go unhindered through us. But that means we have to encounter, allow him to deal with the resistance that we have in our lives. And part of how we see, continue to see this is true is that even for Jesus, who is completely Without resistance, unhindered, the, the power and authority of the kingdom is flowing freely. Even his call is give, tested by God. Every call by God is tested. It's an important place for us just to sit for a second because oftentimes when we share our faith, we haven't been told that. We haven't been given that understanding is that when we understand who we are, it's very, very freeing, very, very liberating. It's very, very empowering when you know who you are because of whose you are and the authority and power that's behind you. But in knowing that, having that confidence, having that empowerment will be tested by God. We see that with Jesus himself. 
Jesus is out in the Judean desert. He's out in the wilderness between the cities of Jericho and Jerusalem. And the enemy of God, the manifestation of evil and rebellion, the one called Satan, confronts a potential rival, Jesus, the beloved Son of Man and Son of God. And the repeated question that we'll hear throughout our time in the wilderness is telling, if you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God. It's a question that not surprisingly centers around identity and calling. Who are you? What are you here to do if you are the Son of God? It's a question that harkens back to the very beginning where once again, or once at the very start, the tempter presented the question, did God really say? Because after all, nothing is more undermining to one's security than a conditional belief. A conditional belief. I want us to see something else here. Just like in the beginning, here in the wilderness with Jesus, it's not just Jesus who's being tested. Jesus representing our humanity is not the only one being tested, but what's happening here is God our Father is being tested as well. Can God be trusted? Is what God says about us true? Is God really calling us beloved? Are we really entrusted with the authority and power of the kingdom? Did God really say once again, as at the beginning, here is Jesus. Remember, I talked about this. The Holy Spirit coming upon Christ is the beginning of a new creation. So once again, here the devil seeks to establish his own power and authority over and against God's through a full frontal assault on both the covenant and the kingdom, the identity and the responsibility. We're going to be here the next couple of weeks because our journey into the wilderness with Jesus is about confronting the three greatest sources of resistance to the authority of God our Father in our lives. The three most common sources of resistance in our lives. The temptations that await us in the wilderness are the same tests that you and I encounter every day of our lives in seeking to live out our covenant identity and our kingdom responsibility. And the reason why testing matters, the reason why testing has to happen, the reason why testing comes by the Holy Spirit is again back to that understanding of power and resistance. Testing is what determines whether or not we can handle the load of the power of the kingdom that God seeks to unleash in and through us. When we deal with things with power, we test to see if whatever it is that's going to be the conduit of that power has the ability to handle the load. And testing is about seeing, do we embrace the covenant? The promise of God our Father. Will we live out of that relationship foundationally? Our experience in the wilderness is about testing our resistance to our newly declared and yet always true identity. And as we heard this morning, the first source of resistance in our lives, the first place of our testing, the first temptation put upon Jesus has to do with appetite. Appetites. Our appetites, I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way, our appetites relate to our sense of identity in that how we fulfill our appetites is a reflection of who or what we understand ourselves to be. How we fill our appetites is a reflection of our identity, of who or what we understand ourselves to be. If you weren't here and if you were, I want you to think back to last week's uh, story about a chicken and a hawk, which is somewhere here, there it is, about a chicken hawk that was actually an eagle. The eagle was raised to believe it was a chicken hawk. 
It was the illustration I gave you. The, the eagle had a false identity. It was truly an eagle, but it was raised to believe it was a chicken hawk. And if you remember that story, you remember that I told you that that mistaken sense of identity led the eagle to feed on the diet of a chicken hawk. Worms and insects were being eaten by an eagle instead of fish and small creatures. Because, beloved, the relationship between our appetites and our identity goes hand in hand. It's perhaps best expressed by one of those sayings that we have, you are what you eat. You are what you eat. And of course, doop, 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 doop. sorry. Our appetites are not bad things. You are what you eat. We have to eat. We have to take things in. And when we're talking about our appetites, our eating habits, we're talking about more than just food. Our appetites are not just physical, they're also deeply spiritual. We have cravings that are related, yes, to food and drink, but we also have cravings that are related to shelter, to comfort, to companionship, to pleasure. And, and these kind of appetites are perfectly normal. They're God-given, and therefore they're good. It's important we understand that our appetites, many of them are God-given, and therefore they're good. The problem that we encounter today in the wilderness is when our appetites go bad, when they become unhealthy. And there's two ways that that can happen. Two ways that our appetites can become unhealthy. The first way is when we hunger for things that are not good for us. The first way that our appetites go bad is when we start to hunger for things that are not good for us. And if they're not good for us, that means they're poisonous. For example, none of us, I hope, would think of chugging down some paint thinner in order to quench our thirst. I would hope that none of us, to satisfy maybe a hunger pain in our stomach, would start chomping on cold medicine in order to fill our bellies. And yet, even though none of us would do that, these are two, as you know, of the main ingredients in making crystal meth. Something that thousands upon thousands of people sadly eagerly ingest on a regular basis. There are lots of things that we get hungry for that are not good for us, that are not just physical things. There are lots of things that we get hungry for that are not good for us. Many of us get hungry for revenge or for gossip, and these are things that are not good for us. These are just two examples of things that God our Father never intended for us to get an appetite for. God never intended for us to get an appetite for revenge. God never intended for us to get an appetite for gossip. Scripture again and again of just those two examples points to, don't do it, don't go there. And God doesn't want us to get an appetite for those things and, some, and many other things like them because they're poisonous, because they're cancerous to our souls. The first way that our appetites go bad is when we begin to hunger for things that are not good for us. The second way that our appetites can go bad is when our appetites lead us to overindulgence. And that's where we have appetites for the things that God has given us, good things. But we overindulge. Our appetites for good things go bad when we have, as we like to say, too much of a good thing. For example, sugar is yummy. I'm going to get some agreement on that, I hope. Sugar is yummy. Girl Scouts are counting on the fact that sugar is yummy. <laughs> Who doesn't among us, and I won't ask you, your choice, indulge a bit of a sweet tooth now and then? I myself, you put a plate of chocolate chip cookies in front of me or some brownies, and they will be gone before the day is over. Ask my kids or my wife. My daughter is shaking her head. They have to hide them from me. That's how much I like chocolate chip cookies and brownies. But... And, and sugar's great. Sugar's good. I mean, I love chocolate chip cookies. Who, I, I can't preach against that. That would be like taking out my heart. But when candy and sweets dominate our diet, 
you know, as well as I do, maybe you've experienced it, we become perpetual victims of the highs and lows of a sugar rush. And eventually, if we're really pushing, if we're not careful, we can even become diabetic. We can have too much of almost anything, if you think about it. We can have too much of almost anything. We can take almost anything that's God-given, God-given, almost anything, something good into something harmful or threatening to our health just by having too much of a good thing. And it's bigger, again, than something physical. Think about it for a second. How many of us, if, if one is overly fixated, if one is overly fixated, how easily does desire become lust? If one is overly obsessed, how easily does competition, a good thing, become envy or boasting? Beloved, our appetites can turn on us. Our, our appetites can become unhealthy. And I want to give us a couple of quick signs of how we can recognize unhealthy appetites in our lives. And the reason why I want to do this is because what I've found personally, let alone pastorally, is that unhealthy appetites in our lives are fairly easy to see from the outside but much harder to notice from the inside. So here are a couple of signs as we reflect on our appetites. Anything we do compulsively, anything we do compulsively without thinking or reflection, reactively, probably is a symptom of an unhealthy appetite. Anything that we would find extremely difficult to give up, even to the point of sacrificing more important things in our life for, is probably a symptom of an unhealthy appetite. Anything that we make extensive excuses for whenever challenged and get overly defensive and protective about to the point of being completely irrational is a sign, a symptom of an unhealthy appetite. Unhealthy appetites are dangerous. They're so dangerous that we actually have a name for our unhealthy appetites. We call them addictions. We call them addictions. And, and it's interesting because modern science, through the study of addictions, has actually revealed to us how our appetites go bad, how our appetites become unhealthy. When an appetite goes bad, when an appetite becomes an addiction, it actually rewires the physical chemistry of our bodies. The, it, literally, the pleasure center, centers of our bodies elevate the priority and presence of the satisfaction of that particular appetite over others such that we believe that we need whatever it is we are constantly craving. Our body has, rewires itself to actually make us believe that this craving is something we need in order to survive. We believe we need it in order to survive because our body makes us feel the urgency of that need. Intense pleasure at the reward that nothing else can take us there. Nothing else can give us that le level of pleasure. Or intense agony at being deprived. And for those of us who've experienced addiction personally or within our families or friendships, we know the insidious thing about our unhealthy appetites when they become addictions. The insidious thing about addiction is that that unhealthy appetite that all of a sudden our life centers around, it becomes an itch we can never fully scratch. The ante always gets higher. What happens is we can only get the same level of satisfaction with a bigger helping of our craving. Higher and higher we go until one day we finally realize. And for some of us, it's later rather than sooner. Higher and higher we go until we finally realize we aren't controlling our appetites anymore. Our appetites are controlling us. 
Radio personality Paul Harvey, who some of you may not know, but now you know because of the Super Bowl commercial that was on about the Dodge truck and God made a farmer. Everyone, everyone remember that commercial? That's, that voice on that commercial is uh, radio uh, broadcaster Paul Harvey, Harvey. And he tells the story of how an Eskimo kills a wolf. I want to warn you from the outset, this is a little graphic, but it dramatically reveals how our appetites can control us. So Paul Harvey tells this story of how an Eskimo kills a wolf. First, the Eskimo coats his knife blade with animal blood and allows it to freeze. Then he adds another layer of blood and another until the blade is completely concealed by the frozen blood. Next, the hunter fixes his knife in the ground with the blade up. When a wolf follows his sensitive nose to the source of the scent and discovers the bait, he licks it, tasting the fresh, frozen blood. He begins to lick faster, more and more vigorously lapping the blade until the keen edge is bare. Feverishly now, harder and harder, the wolf licks the blade in the Arctic night. So great becomes his craving for blood that the wolf does not notice the razor-sharp sting of the naked blade on his own tongue. Nor does he recognize that instant at which his insatiable thirst is being satisfied by his own warm blood. The wolf's carnivorous appetite just craves more until the dawn finds him dead in the snow. How did the Eskimo kill the wolf? By allowing the wolf to be consumed by his own appetite. And beloved, that's what happens when our appetites could begin to control us. Addiction leads to captivity until that appetite devours you. And so as we stand here in the wilderness with Jesus facing our first trial, which is our appetites, we realize that our cravings are not just physical, but mental, emotional, and spiritual. And we face this question. What's eating you? What's eating you? Where in our lives are we being devoured, eaten alive by our own appetites? I mean, we all have legitimate needs. If we were to have a conversation right now, I know we could come up with a list of legitimate needs that we all have. But my brothers and sisters in Christ, as we live in a world that's driven more and more by the accumulation and absorption of stuff, we live in a world that's, you ever think about it, how much stuff we accumulate and absorb? As we live in that kind of world that's more and more about that, the, how much room we have for all of our stuff, how we hold on to all of our stuff, the question I have is, are we truly consumers or are we being consumed by our appetites and our desires. We have reality TV shows now about hoarders. And I don't know if anybody else finds it disturbing that we have that kind of a show on, because it's not disturbing. I mean, yes, it's disturbing to see people who are struggling with hoarding of collectibles and experiences and resources. But what's more disturbing to me is, for us, that gives us an out. Do you know how many people I talk to who watch that show, and you know why they watch that show? They tell me, because, well, I'm not as bad as them. What the heck does that mean? I'm not as bad as them? When did that become the standard? Well, I'm not as bad as them. So it makes us feel better about our hoarding. Because the truth is, we are being consumed. It takes a lot of energy. And you all in your mind right now are thinking about different stuff. It takes a lot of energy to keep track of our stuff, to keep it pristine, to keep it safe, to keep it up to date, the latest and greatest. You want to know a symptom that you're a hoarder? You want to know a symptom that you're being consumed by your stuff? You start to use it as a bargaining chip in your life. Hey, if you're really good, I might let you have this. But if you're not, I'm not going to let you have this. 
Hey, don't touch that. Hey, that's perfect right where it is. No one has access to that. That's mine. Beloved, are we being consumed or are we really consumers? What's eating you? We uh, talk about this a lot in church and outside of it. We are in a, just a busy world. We have chaotic lives and we know this. We see this on the news all the time. Reports doesn't just seem to come up again and again that as, as increasingly busy and chaotic as our lives are, we are a society where more and more people are relying on fast food and junk food in order to survive. We're relying on fast food and junk food in order to survive. We know that. Some of us are living it. But do we ever go past that acknowledgement to ask ourselves that are we willing to consider the fact that this functional aspect of our day-to-day existence is in fact a deeper reflection of our spiritual lives? On what are we feeding? What are we depending upon to sustain us? I mean, each one of us, myself included, we all have in the midst of the busyness and the chaos our shortcuts, don't we? We all have our quick bites for coping, for holding everything together. But at what price? It's rampant out there. I'm about to say words out loud that I should be talking about more in church, but we don't like to acknowledge them. Again, we think it's out there, and yet if the statistics hold, it's rampant in this room, whether we want to admit it or not. We are living on fast food and junk food because the epidemic of pornography, gambling, technology, addiction to technology, addiction to reality TV. You don't have a life. You live a life through someone else's life that isn't real anyway on TV. (laughs) And video games. Sorry for all the teenagers that might be here that aren't at camp. Video games, and there are adults who play them too. Think about pornography, gambling, technology, reality TV, video games. We could add the list. How many hours of our lives does that stuff suck up? And is anyone going to make the argument that that makes a sustainable difference in our lives and our relationships? Can't we make the opposite, that it's junk food, that it's fast food, that it delivers what it cannot satisfy? What's eating us? Are we confident as we gather here that our Father is loving, that our Father can and will meet our every need, that our Father will hold us secure? Or have our appetites started to control not just how we think and feel, but have our appetites also started to control how we live our lives, how we spend our time and our energy? Beloved, what's eating us? As Jesus is confronted in the wilderness, Matthew tells us quite plainly, he's hungry. Matthew just says it right out. Jesus is hungry. After 40 days of just water, he's probably famished. His appetites are probably screaming, feed me now. And the tempter's appeal is to satisfy his appetite. Jesus, turn these stones to bread. In other words, Jesus, if you're hungry, make some food. But he doesn't do it. He will not turn stones into bread. Beloved, where and when are we tempted to make stones into bread in our lives? No show of hands, God forbid. How many of us are trying to live off of lustful glances right now? How many of us are trying to live off of secret thoughts, maybe even an extramarital affair? How many of us are trying to satisfy our hunger by showing others up or putting others down? How many of us are trying to feed off of our need to be right all the time? How many of us are being eaten alive from the inside out by our fixation with revenge, with getting even, with getting ahead? 
How many of us are being consumed by our obsession with proving ourselves to our parents, to our friends, to the world, to ourselves? What's eating you? I don't know if you saw this, but Michael Jordan just turned 50. Michael Jordan, if you're not familiar with him, his picture is considered perhaps one of the greatest NBA players of all time. He, the accolades, the awards, titles are numerous that he had during his career. And still, years later after his retirement, he is still, when you, if you watch NBA games, talk about basketball, he is still the standard by which current players are measured in terms of their performance. And yet, despite he's considered one of the greatest players ever, despite the fact that he's the standard by which other players today are still measured, despite all the titles and the awards, I was fascinated by an article I read this week in ESPN magazine. It's called Michael Jordan Has Not Left the Building. I want you to listen to an excerpt from this article. Part of it is Michael Jordan's own words. Listen to this. The writer starts by saying, his self-esteem has always been, as he says, directly tied to the game. Without it, he feels adrift. Who am I? What am I doing? For the past 10 years since retiring for the third time, he's been running, moving as fast as he could, creating distractions, distance. It's consumed me so much, he says. I'm my own worst enemy. I drove myself so much that I'm still living with some of those drives. I'm living with that. I don't know how to get rid of it. I don't know if I could. And here I am, still connected to the game. I don't know Michael Jordan, and I don't think this is exclusive to him. I think this speaks to us. But I don't know if you, you remember this, but when I was growing up, when Michael Jordan was playing, there was like the Gatorade commercial, you know, the really famous one, you know the Gatorade commercial? Remember the song? Like Mike, I'd like to be like Mike. Anybody want to be like Mike now? Or maybe we're more like Mike than we realize. Mike, greatest NBA player of all time, standard by which others are measured, titles, awards, accolades, endorsements, things that we would be like, oh, if my life could go there. And yet Michael is struggling with his identity just like the rest of us. His appetite to compete, these are his words, is consuming him. His whole life is still connected to the game. We may not all be basketball players, but some of us, I think, could confess the same thing today. Beloved, in what area of your life is your, are your appetites getting the best of you? Where is the overall diet of your life imbalanced? That part of yourself where you are constantly giving into a craving or a hunger to the point where it's eating away at you. It's weakening you spiritually and thereby creating a source of resistance to the living waters that your father wants to flow in and through you. Because without those waters, the soil of our lives in Christ gets dry and becomes unfruitful. And beloved, as we talked about last week, and this is why we're continuing, there are so many Christians I encounter. Maybe you're here today. Someone who says, I follow Jesus, and yet the soil of your life in Christ is dry. You look at your life and there's no fruit. What's eating you? It's a hell of a question. The good news, always there's good news is that we don't have to look for the answers in the desert to that question on our own. Thank God. We gather today because as we heard, Jesus goes before us. Jesus paves, paves the way for us 
But it's really important as we say that out loud, many of us know that, that we understand that Jesus here in the wilderness is more than just a model for us. He's more than just an inspiration for us. I mean, he is. We, we can look to Jesus as a model. We can look to Jesus for inspiration. But we, it will not be successful for us. It will not be applicable for us if we first don't acknowledge that Jesus is the master. I mean, so many of us have said, well, I accept Jesus, what he did for me. Now I'm going to go and do it on my own. And as I've tried to emphasize in a number of different ways, and here it is, Jesus can't be a model in your life. Jesus can't be an inspiration for you if he's not first the master of your life. It's not, I'm going to copy and do what Jesus does. Jesus isn't a fad or a fashion. Jesus is the master and we are disciples. He is the one. Jesus is the one, the only one who can do the heavy lifting of the cross and the resurrection. That's why we take this Lenten journey, to remind ourselves we aren't just copying Jesus, we're following Jesus. He's the only one who can be the portal, as we talked about, for us to be filled by the Holy Spirit. He's the only one who connects the things of heaven with the things of earth. Until Jesus clears away in the wilderness, we cannot do what he does. So important we hear this, because otherwise, what, if you're not hearing this, then everything I just said before, the wolf, Michael, Jordan, appetite, you're just piling on the guilt and the shame, and right now you're saying, I'm going to try harder. Right now you're saying, I'm going I'm to pull up my bootstraps. I'm going to do better. I'm going to go get them. Or you're saying, man, I feel like garbage. Man, I can never do this. What a great sermon this was. Great. <laughs> but if you pull back and stop in the midst of either the, the urgency to pull yourself up or the sense of just sinking down in your pew and remember Jesus is the master, then we have some place to go. Part of what we miss here, some of us know this, some of us don't, is that what Jesus is doing here in the wilderness is he's actually, he's fulfilling a destiny that Israel was intended, the nation of Israel was intended to fulfill, but could not compete, complete on her own. The mention of 40 days in the wilderness for Jesus ought to remind us of the 40 years of wilderness wanderings for the Israelites during the Exodus. For those of you who are here, we went through the book of Exodus. Do you remember? Do you remember? There in the desert, the Israelites faced and failed before these same three great temptations. They refused to live out of their identity, to trust God and follow their father's lead. And beloved... Things haven't changed. It's the same for, for us as it was for them. We don't face these temptations of our wilderness appetites on our own strength. We don't face them out of some innate willpower. We must rely on the grace of God following the one who has been sent for us and to us. To overcome the temptation of our appetites, we have to live out of our identity in Christ. So what is, what is it that we glean out of that identity in Christ? What does following Jesus offer us to counter the resistance of our appetites. Well, the first thing that Matthew tells us is that Jesus fasted. I talked a little bit about fasting last week, and it was great. I got some pushback, which, I, that's awesome. What did you mean by this? Or how, explain that some more. And so I want to talk. It's perfect. It's right here to talk more about fasting. We're told that Jesus fasted. And what's brilliant is Jesus here gives us a lesson in what true fasting is about. I find, and I've been subject to this, a lot of us think or have been incorrectly taught that fasting is about a direct head-on approach with dealing with our appetites. The way it works is, if this is your thinking too, is we identify the unhealthy predominant appetite or craving in our lives and we give it up for Lent or for a period of time. But it's the interesting thing, right? We talked about this last week because it's a funny thing. And I talked about people I've talked to who will say, you know what, caffeine has just got a stranglehold on me. I just get very irritable if I don't have my caffeine. So that's it. I'm giving up caffeine for Lent. And then don't you know what, next year, you know what, I'm going to give up caffeine again for Lent. 
Year three, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give up caffeine again for Lent. Something's missing. The direct assault doesn't work for two reasons. The direct assault approach, this understanding we have of fasting, doesn't work for two reasons. First, the unhealthy appetite has a greater power over us. That's why we're addressing it in the first place. So if it has a greater power over us, trying to go mono e mono isn't going to work. Because by denying ourselves, we're actually feeding its power over us. The real issue that fasting is trying to address is not the thing itself. It's not the uncontrolled appetite. What the real issue is that fasting is trying to address is how that unhealthy appetite has hampered our self-control. How it's hampered our ability to say no. Israel's struggle back in the wilderness during the time of Moses, Israel's real struggle in the wilderness wasn't about food or provision or security. Israel's real struggle was about getting Egypt out of Israel. Rejecting the ways of the empire of Egypt and replacing it with the reign of the kingdom of God. And so the, best, the, the proper understanding of fasting, which might be very, very helpful for many of us, is not a direct approach but an indirect approach. Fasting is actually about building our capacity to say no. It's about increasing our power to trust and rely on God as our Father. The key is to deny one appetite, a lesser one, in order to gain confidence, the capacity to say no to the greater appetite. So what we ought to do at Lent is we ought to give up something that's not easy, but it's not the big mountain that we're trying to climb. And instead, give up something that's within our trajectory and allow God to teach us, to help us to give that up. So that then we increase our capacity, our confidence in able to engage what's really underneath, which is the greater resistance to trusting our Father. Because that's the real issue. It's increasing our capacity to trust our Father. We learn to say no to something smaller in order to gain capacity to say no to the real issue, the true source of resistance to the Lord in our lives. I don't know if you ever noticed this, but if I asked you to mentally right now retell me the story that's here in Matthew 4, it's interesting, but people, when I ask them, will say, Jesus came into the wilderness and the devil tempted him. But read Matthew again. Matthew says, Jesus fasted first. Do you notice that? He fasted first. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and then the devil started launching his temptations upon him. I think this is significant. Because you know what, the, I, and this is Pastor Chris, the devil thought that Jesus was probably weakened after 40 days. Awesome. 40 days with nothing to eat. Fantastic. He's weak. Here I come. And Matthew tells us Jesus was hungry. Yes, he was. But what we need to see between the lines of why did Jesus fast first is during that 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was building up his capacity, his reliance upon the Lord. And Jesus demonstrates that this is how fasting is supposed to work. You know, many of us have been tortured because we've been taught that fasting is about like this wanton self-denial, like tearing yourself away from something that you've just come to rely on or believe you need. And again, why does that thing have such a power over us is if all of a sudden you, you're, you believe you need something and you just try to go cold turkey, it never works because that vacuum demands to be filled. And some of you who struggle with addiction know this story. You give up one addiction for another. True fasting is about increasing our capacity. It's about, again, denying something so that we saying no in order to say yes, but in also to increase our capacity, we have to fill that vacuum with something else. True fasting is about denying one appetite and replacing it with a healthier appetite. Here's the thing. Jesus hasn't been starving himself in the desert. 
He's been building up his capacity, replacing his hunger for food or shelter or comfort with another appetite. And when the devil tempts him, we find out what he's replaced it with. When the devil challenges him, Jesus reveals what he's been filling himself with during those 40 days. The scriptures. The word of God. And this is significant because as a principle, you need to replace that with something else. If you take something away, you need to fill it with something else. But Jesus is saying in all of life, the greatest thing, the foundational thing to replace, to build your life on is the word of God. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He quotes Deuteronomy, that book that's about those Israel wilderness wanderings. And Jesus reminds us that the appetite that was created to be our most basic, the foundational appetite from which all our other appetites ought to come is our hunger for God. When we get into trouble is when we put any other appetite before our appetite for our Father. The question goes, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is to enjoy God and to glorify him forever. We are to hunger first for our Father and for his word, every word that comes out of his mouth. Beloved, Jesus is showing us that we fast in order to feast. We need to learn how to get hungry for God because only God our Father can truly satisfy the ultimate cravings that we have. Those cravings for significance, for worth, for purpose, for security, for destiny, for rescue, for redemption, for reconciliation, for resurrection. Only God can satisfy those ultimate cravings. Life apart from God, a diet of junk food, it numbs our sense of taste. And beloved, many of us have lost our sense of taste. We need to recapture the flavor of the voice of our Father, the presence of Jesus and the company of the Spirit in our lives. We need to change our eating habits as Christians. I'm going to repeat myself from the Wednesday night class, but it blows my mind as a pastor how many Christians, not outside the church, inside the church, how many Christians, and I'm talking teenagers to middle-aged to older adults who confess to me, you know what, I don't hear from God. I've never heard from God. God doesn't speak to me. I don't even know what that's like. What do you think this is? That, that, that response belies the very problem. What do you think this is? <laughs> Life apart from God is going to, it not only numbs our sense of taste, but if we don't find that hunger for the word of God, then we're going to fill it with something else. And that's what we've done. But here's the thing, the scriptures, if you want to know who you are, we keep coming back, I know it's kind of circular. The scriptures are how we know who God is. If you don't know who God is, you've got to be in the word. If you want to know who you are, who you truly are, you've got to be in the word. You can't have that without this. Apart from them, apart from the scriptures, your sense of who God is, and that's why most people think God, God is a cross between, as I like to say, Santa Claus and Kenny Rogers, or your sense of self that God is disapproving of you all the time is formed by something else. If you read this, if you're listening to the very words that come from the mouth of God, you will not go there. The scriptures are the only way that we know who God is and who we are. Apart from the word of God, we will fill our lives with other stuff. Now I know, I'll, and that's why we're having this class. I know it's hard. I know it's challenging. I know it's awkward. I know it takes effort. It requires fasting. We have to say no to other appetites to develop an appetite for the word of God. I acknowledge all of that with you. But that doesn't mean we just give up. I'll tell you a little story. Tomatoes. 
When I was younger, really young, someone told me that a tomato was a fruit. And I loved fruit as a kid. So I grabbed the tomato because it looked good, and I bit into it, and I thought I was going to die. <laughs> Didn't taste like any fruit I ever had before. And that began my hatred of tomatoes. But I was surrounded by people who loved them. And when I say love them, I'm talking about, you know, if it was on a burger or, you know, it was on in a salad or, well, they just sliced them and just had them there and just were eating them with a knife and fork. They would just, like, make these divine groans. Oh, my gosh. And if it was a homegrown tomato, oh, Lord. woohoo! <laughs> and I'd sit there and I'm like, that is the nastiest looking thing I have ever seen. But people were just like, oh, it's just. <sighs> and so it just bugged me, you know, it just bugged me. People just rave about tomatoes, and they, look, they do. They look, they look very appealing. And, and then there, I remember what it, what it was. There was a report, and, and this has come and gone since, and it'll, it'll get replaced by something else. And on the news, you know, it's like, eat tomatoes. All you eat is tomatoes. You'll never get anything. You'll be cancer-free. You'll be, I mean, tomatoes will save your life. You live to 150. And I was just like, oh, my gosh. Just, I, I, there was this, this thing of everyone just raving about tomatoes, but I look at them, and they're horrible. I taste them, and they're all slimy. But I decided. I am going to like tomatoes. I'm going to force myself to like tomatoes. My wife thought I was crazy. <laughs> and let me tell you, the first couple of weeks, couple of months actually, were horrible. I'd put tomatoes on my burger. I'd put them in my salad. And at first, and I got called out, I'd like move them to the side. You know, I'd eat everything else. It's like, are you going to eat those tomatoes? I would eat them and it just, oh, slimy, the seeds and all. And I just would eat them, and I'd be telling myself, this is really good for me. <laughs> Man. And then, you know, people would be like, oh, you should try a homegrown tomato. I'd try it, and I'd be like, oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> and it was hard. It was so hard. But I, just, I, I was persistent. I, I insisted. And my wife's like, what are you doing this to yourself? No one's making you have tomatoes. What is wrong with you? If you don't have tomatoes, don't have tomatoes. No, no. I'm going to like tomatoes. One day, I was at lunch, and I'm looking at the menu, and you know what I wanted? Tomatoes. I want, and it's one of my favorite things to eat now. I wanted that sliced tomato with the mozzarella and the bait. Oh, man. And if it's homegrown tomatoes, oh. <laughs> true story, true story. I, tomatoes are one of my favorite things now. But I would not have gotten there. I'm not kidding when I tell you weeks and months of just eating them, taking them, and, and in the experience going, I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't see it. I don't get it. What I'm talking about here is way bigger. But, and it may seem counterintuitive, but you need to struggle a bit. You need to continue to eat the tomato. Okay? You know, some people think, well, it's counterintuitive. Well, it's the word of God. I should open it up, and it should just all of a sudden, wow, oh, I believe. Well, if that's true, the Gideons put these in every you know, hotel room. We should have people coming out of hotels checking out, sir. Yes, and I'm a Christian now. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't happen, okay? okay? It doesn't work like that. Because this, again, this is a relationship, and relationships are hard. But here's the thing, all joking aside, we have lots of ways in which we can wrestle with this. We have sermons. Guys, and I'm not, I'm not saying this for me, I'm saying this for you. This is my job as a pastor. Some of you are not here every week, and that's totally cool. I'm not guilting you out. But when I'm preaching through something, I'm preaching under the assumption that you're tracking with me. 
So like Esther, if you weren't here for all of Esther, you may have benefited from it. I try every sermon that you benefit from it, but I preached on the whole thing of Esther so you could ingest the whole book of Esther. If you don't go back and listen and engage that, you're missing what I'm trying to do. You still can get something, but this is an example of, again, part of my job is to, when I preach, is, and I know I go long, and that's fine, you know, some of you are fine with it, others have gone elsewhere, that's cool. I am trying to give you a hunger for the Word of God. Some people say that my preaching is like a Bible study. It is. I don't just give a couple of stories and a cute little thing. This is what you ought to think. And you know why? Because also as a pastor, I see more and more biblical illiteracy within churches. And you can tell me otherwise, but I know it. For many of you, this is the only chance I get. This is it. It's the only chance I get to try to give you a hunger, try to make you eat the tomato. That's it. But it's got to be more. There's Bible studies, and I know you're busy, and I know you think, oh, it's, I'm, I'm going to seem stupid. I don't know what to Just eat the tomato. There's, you can open up the scriptures every day, and if you do it every day, you, scripture memorization is huge, too. It's been lost. You know, scripture memorization's kind of fallen out of fashion because it just became about gold stars. It was never about gold stars or proving you were better than someone else. Scripture memorization came from this place of understanding that God says to us, get my word inside you meditate on it, digest it, so that when the enemy comes at you, when temptation comes, you're not suddenly going, where's my Bible? Where's the concordance? The word rises up from within you because it's inside of you. That's what scripture memorization is all about. Jesus for 40 days was ingesting scripture. So the minute the enemy comes at him, he just goes, oh, here it is. This is what God says. If you're, not, if you're struggling, and, and again, as a pastor, you're amazed I want to point you to scriptures, but it's troubling to me how many people come and go, it's like I'm the Bible answer man. That's not my job. Hey, I'm looking for a scripture on this. Can you tell me where to find it? Okay, I'll tell you where to find it, but do you even know the first place to look? I mean, there's something wrong. I mean, I, 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 there's some, my relationship is I'm not a doctor passing out scriptural pills. I'm coming under the assumption that we're in the word together. You got to eat the tomato. <laughs> Let me tell you this, though. Similar to why I told this story. I know it's hard. I know it's awkward. I know many of you feel, will feel frustrated. It won't taste right. All the things I tried to give you in that tomato story. But if you stick with it, if you don't eat alone, don't eat alone. Eating alone is bad. Read the scriptures together with other people. What will happen? Trust me on this. You will develop an appetite, a longing for the word of God that will surprise you. Greater than my love for tomatoes now. And you know the difference, the thing that's unique about this book, about the Word of God, than anything else? Remember we talked about addiction, the way addiction works, other appetites in our lives, the more that we indulge them. Remember what I told you, the insidious thing, is that it takes a higher and higher dosage, more, a bigger helping in order to give us that same level of satisfaction. But the, the, the end of the line with addiction is it goes and goes higher and higher until it finally kills us. This is the only thing you can be addicted to that it will give you more and more capacity for it and you will never completely max out. And it will never kill you. It will actually make you more alive. You can be addicted to the word of God and it will never completely, you'll never completely exhaust it. This is the one thing that we have that it's okay to let it devour you. Because if it devours you, you're getting the point. You're getting the capacity. You're getting the power and authority that God wants to give you. The very beginning of his campaign for this world and for each one of us, Jesus began his fight using his hunger for scripture in the midst of a wilderness of doubt, 
of confusion and temptation. Is that our starting point? Are we hungry for God's word? Because we're tempted in the same way that Jesus was. We're tempted in the same way that Jesus was to put our appetite for other things ahead of our appetite for God. But just like Jesus, through Jesus, we have been made beloved sons and daughters of our Father, sisters and brothers of Christ in the waters of baptism. Just like Jesus, we've been given the same spirit that Jesus received. And this means, among other things, that we have the same resources that Jesus had in his temptations. In the spirit, trusting in God as Jesus did, we will become strong. We will develop the capacity not only to be fed by the word of God, not only to resist evil. The beautiful thing is that we will develop the capacity to feed others with the word of God, to overcome evil with good. And that's huge, everybody, because there's a lot of hungry people out there. So let's gather around the word. Let's gather around the sacrament in order to be reminded that we need never go hungry in Christ. With Jesus, there's always bread on the table. There's always wine in the cup. And with Jesus, the food that we are given always satisfies. Amen?